For those of you who were here last week, um, you will um, remember that I sat down, and um, some of you will have picked up on the fact that I just read the Sermon on the Mount with a few little um, tweaks here and there, just to kind of um, so that I could prove that I had actually read it and planned it in some way beforehand, um, and changed words like hallowed um, in the bit where it gets to the Lord's Prayer to holy um, and um, things like that. Um, and I did it sitting down, and the reason for doing it sitting down was because at the beginning uh, of the passage in Matthew um, that is the Beatitudes, uh, as we um, titled it, it says, Now when he saw the crowd, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Now, I was tempted to sit down again. A couple of people said they liked the fact that I sat down. Um, uh, but because it's not what I'm used to, in this context, it makes me more nervous because I can't like move my hands around and step sideways and do things like that. So I thought, so that I don't get kind of too nervous um, doing this, uh, I would hold out on the sitting down. Um, and I think probably um, the main reason that we've got rid of the sitting down uh, for pastors and preachers in churches is imagine how long they would preach for if they were comfortable. I, Jesus was sat on the ground on a hillside, or it says on, in the NIV translation, it says mountainside. That's not a comfortable place to sit. So you can sit for a while, but you'd kind of move on eventually. Whereas with a nice comfy chair, I don't know that they're the comfiest of chairs, but if I'd got one of the red chairs up, imagine Neil if he was sitting down. The reason we stop is because our legs ache, not because we've got nothing to say. Um, but there we go. Um, so last week, um, we, we started this series off by, I just read out, um, I just read out, um, I thought, how can I better Jesus? Um, he's already given this sermon, why would I try and elaborate on it or do anything more with it than Jesus did? Um, but the series is four Sundays long, and I thought that probably someone would question it by the time I read it out for the fourth time. So I thought what Neil was really trying to get at when he said it would be good to do a series and he gave me the theme of the Sermon on the Mount that was I was actually supposed to do something with it more than just read it out four times. Um, though I can recommend reading it repeatedly because having done so, I've been challenged on it um, more than I probably imagined I would have been. And I've come to know the Sermon on the Mount quite well. Um, but what I thought I would do this evening is I would thought I would start by putting us into a context uh, for the sermon. Um, it wasn't just that um, Jesus gave this at any point in time. Um, uh, it, I thought it would be useful to kind of look at um, who was it that Jesus had given this sermon to? Was it just one sermon? Um, why did Matthew decide to write it down? Um, why has Matthew put it in the bit of the gospel that he's put it in and all that sort of thing? So first of all, um, when was it written? Now, arguably, um, it was written by Matthew. Matthew uh, was one of Jesus' disciples. Um, he was a tax collector. Um, you get to read about him in the other Gospels. Um, I, probably in Matthew um, itself, um, though I can't remember exactly where. But it's mentioned through Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you will find references to him as a tax collector. So he was one of Jesus' disciples. Um, and it used to be thought that this was the first of the Gospels that was written, and that's why it's the first one in the New Testament. 
Now, there's obviously some debate about that because um, none of us were there. Um, and so we can't be entirely sure. And it was a long time ago. Um, and all of those sorts of things. But it's now, scholars have looked at these things. I'm not a scholar. I'm a youth worker. Um, uh, but scholars have looked at it. And the various commentaries say that it was probably actually written after the book of Mark. Um, so if you're interested in these things, Mark was probably written first. But um, historically, and in the, when the Bible started to be put together and the New Testament was being put together, um, lots of things, people put books in different orders and did lots of things in different ways and went, should this go here, should that go there, um, depending on the group of people. But Matthew always seemed to come at the start. Um, and... One of the reasons for that is possibly because it starts out um, in Matthew chapter 1 with a whole genealogy of Jesus, which is what um, the Jewish readers would have recognised straight away because the genealogy of Jesus is a Jewish genealogy. And it goes right back to Adam. And so they could go, oh yeah, David and various other folk um, that we read about in the Old Testament are all in Jesus' family tree. So possibly the reason they put it at the beginning of that was because that was um, so that the Jewish um, audience uh, would have recognised that um, and it would have been kind of an easy way in and it puts the rest of the New Testament into a context because they go, okay, this is Jewish, we feel safe with that, we feel comfortable with that, we'll carry on reading. It was probably written, though it's debatable, but it was probably written in about 80 AD, so about um, 80 years. Is time taken from when Jesus was born or when Jesus died? Is Jesus was born? Yes. Nodding head of Ruth, she knows. Um, she's a mum. Um, there we go. <laughs> Mums know everything. They do. <laughs> Good luck, love. Um, <laughs> so, it was written probably at about 80 AD, though, you know, a few years kind of possibly either side of that. We're not entirely sure. And they, again, kind of look at you know, how we know that and all that sort of thing. And I'm not going to go into the in-depth history of how we know when Matthew wrote what he wrote um, and all that sort of thing. Um, and possibly it wasn't written by Matthew, which might be kind of wow, big news for some people, but it is recognised that, or it's believed at least, that Matthew at least had quite a major role in its coming together. So even if he wasn't the one that sat down and wrote it out all by hand, he would have shared a lot of the stuff with the people that did write it down um, and um, been very influential in it coming together. So why then... We've got Matthew... Starting out with the genealogy of Jesus. And then we get um, a bit about his um, birth. Um, and then by chapter 3, we're already into John the Baptist. Chapter 4 is the temptation of Jesus. And then chapter 5, we've got the Sermon on the Mount. So this is right at the start of Jesus' ministry. Now, this might not be a surprise to most people here because it's chapter 5. You know that it's at the beginning of Jesus' ministry because if you were to look at Matthew, there's one or two chapters in it. It goes all the way through to chapter 31, is it? Possibly. 
30. There we go. 28. It's roughly that. <laughs> Sorry, Neil. Um, so, it's pretty early on in the story for him. Why has he put it here? Is this the exact place that it happened in Jesus' ministry? Possibly. Possibly not. Now, if you were to read the other three Gospels, you would find that the others don't have a bit called the Sermon on the Mount. But Matthew puts it in. And so scholars have looked at it and kind of gone, ooh, is this, um, is this, does this mean that it was exactly as Matthew said? It was, exa- it was definitely on a mountainside. And um, it, these were the exact words that he spoke, spoken, written down word for word. That's one possibility. However, given that it was a few years after Jesus had said it, if we say that it was written in AD 80, um, and Jesus died in AD 33, one assumes, although there's a few lost years, but roughly then, you've got a bit of a gap of like 50 years. And now, I can't remember some things that I learned in school 20 years ago. I can't remember the things that I learned on, during my degree 10 years ago, and I can't remember some of the things that were even preached about this morning, as good as Karen's sermon was. I couldn't tell you and write it down word for word. I might be able to give you an overview. Now, if I was to think about Neil's teaching, I can remember some of what Neil has taught over the few years that I've been coming to Colchester Road Baptist Church. Some of you have been coming here a lot longer, and you may have even heard every single one of Neil's sermons since he has been at Colchester Road Baptist Church. My guess is that if you were to try and sum it up in a chapter or two, you wouldn't get it all in word for word. But if you were to say, well, okay, during the time that Neil was at Colchester Road Baptist Church, here's some of the message that he gave, you would get some of the edited highlights of Neil's message or messages. There might be certain things that he's covered. We'd probably joke about the fact that Neil will say, my wife, in most services. He might make reference to a car that he's selling. Um, And there might be some other comedy things that we could use for sermon bingo. Um, But, I don't know what he's got for sale at the moment, but I feel I should make reference to Neil's cars for sale, if you need a new car, or a second-hand one. Um, Head to Neil's wheels. Um, (laughs) It's an aside. Um, There we go. So, the likelihood is... And this isn't just me kind of going, I've had a quick read through and gone, "Mm, yeah, I reckon this is probably the case. This is generally what people think. Actually, this is some of what Jesus taught in various sermons that he would have done around the place as he travelled and taught in different places. And these things that we get in the Sermon on the Mount is kind of a big amalgamation of what he said in various places And kind of, he had his main sermon that he did, and then it's been done in so many places that Matthew, when he comes to write it down, goes, yeah, no, I don't remember exactly, but I do remember these really important parts of the message 
that he gave in various places. And he repeated them a lot. And so that's why Matthew's put them in. And that's kind of backed up by the fact that if you were to go to Luke, there's kind of a good percentage of the Sermon on the Mount in Luke. But it's not all there. And some of it's dotted around in different places. So the order in which things happen isn't quite the same. And there's a bit more of it in, Math- in Mark. And there's a little bit of it in John. But it's all kind of in different parts. It's not exactly in the bit where it says Jesus was baptised, Jesus was tempted, he gets some disciples and he preaches the Sermon on the Mount. So it gives us this bit of a context. So possibly, and I wouldn't like to say, but possibly last week when I read the Sermon on the Mount in its entirety and some of you realised about halfway through that's what I was doing rather than stopping at the start going, is he really going to read the whole Sermon on the Mount and then preach off it? What time are we going to finish? That's possibly, I hope not, I hope that somebody's done that before. But possibly that's the first time anyone ever actually preached that sermon in that way. Because there will have been bits of it that Jesus said here and there and whatever. And when it says he went up on a mountainside, the commentaries that have been written about it suggest that possibly it wasn't a specific place on a specific mountainside, but it's a bit like saying he went out into Ipswich and preached, or that kind of thing. And it's a turn of phrase that said, oh, he went up and he preached on a mountainside, rather than it was a definite specific place and you could go back to it now. Although there are those places, this isn't necessarily saying that, but it's given us a context, and as Matthew writes this, he's trying to take us on a bit of a journey. But what he does do in Matthew is he puts this right at the start. And I'm really struck by this. This has been one of my sticking points, that as I've read the Sermon on the Mount over and over again, and read the various books and commentaries on it, it's really struck me. Because what strikes me is, all the books about the Sermon on the Mount talk about this being a passage about discipleship. I don't argue with that. It's a passage about discipleship. We, as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, it says when you pray and when you fast and love one another and this is how you should live and these are the things that you should do and how you should think. Brilliant. That's discipleship. But in the context of Colchester Road Baptist Church and many other churches in our uh, Western society, we have various groups, like Christianity Explored. Andrew was one of the people that came on Christianity Explored. And, and we've kind of got this pre-Christian distinction, and they're the people that come to things like Christianity Explored and such like, and then you become a Christian, and then... You are discipled, hopefully. Someone teaches you a little bit more about Christianity uh, and about what it means to be a Christian and to live as a Christian and all that sort of thing. If that was what is talked about, then surely that should come right at the end of the Gospel when Jesus has come back to life and then we get the Holy Spirit and then we, we can be saved and therefore then we should have this teaching and we can learn from it. But that's not how it works. It's been put right at the start. And we get the impression, although possibly different bits of it were preached in different places at different times, actually, when people came to hear what Jesus had to say, 
a lot of them will have heard it for the first time. So even if it, was, even if it had been put in later on, um, and it was after a few other things had happened and it was actually at chapter 14, some people are going to be hearing it for the first time. And what really struck me was, this is a really hard message for those of us that have been Christians for a long time and got comfortable. Because we make excuses about stuff, don't we? And when we start reading through the Sermon on the Mount, and we start reading, um, I don't know, chapter 6, when it gets to the bit where it says, Chapter 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. We'd go, of course, we agree with that. And then we'd leave church on a Sunday and something would happen in life, because it does, and we'd be thinking, maybe like Sharon's thinking, jobs and stuff. Um, What am I going to do? Have I just given up my pension? Um, I imagine that's something you've gone, NHS pension. <gasps> if you haven't thought about that yet, sorry for dropping that bombshell. Um, God will provide. Which is a great attitude to have, but it's not an easy attitude to have. And I know that as Amy and I look, um, as I'm exploring ministry and Amy's involved in that, and we may end up moving because of that, um, and which might mean that Amy has to leave her job and all those sorts of things and... Uh, and again, we go NHS pension. And, and people have said to me, oh, Rich, you're not going to sell your flat, are you? Because for the future, that will be a good investment. And I've kind of gone, oh, I hadn't really thought about it, to be fair. But why do I need to worry? But we do. If we're honest, we all worry about it. We worry about our pension. We worry about what's going to happen to us when we grow older. We worry about life. We worry about what we're going to give to our children. Um, and how they're going to grow up. Will they be provided for? And we try to do things in our own strength. And so I think this is a really hard message for those of us that have got comfortable and are able to make excuses and go, well, it's important to have a good pension um, and to make sure we do provide for people. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't. Don't misquote me and come to me at some point and go, Rich said we don't need a pension. I'm not saying you don't need a pension. But if you think that you need to do the job you do to earn the money you earn so that you have a pension so that you can provide for yourself and your family, then you're thinking about it a little bit wrong. You need to think, God is going to provide for me and the family. I've been given this job for a blessing so that I can share the gospel of Christ and his teaching with others. You might be doing the same thing, but your attitude is different. I think this is a really exciting message for people that are new to Christianity. Because if you're new to Christianity, or maybe you're still exploring it, those of us that are kind of have been at church a long time, we want to we want to give you the nice bits. We want to share the nice bits about Christianity. Jesus forgives and he loves you. Isn't that nice? What we don't necessarily want to say to other people that aren't Christians, that don't know Jesus as we know him, is actually this is a really, really, really tough way of living your life. Um, And I'm really glad that Sharon was brave enough to go, you know what, I'd love to say it was all 
lovely for, since I was baptised at 13, but it hasn't been. Life is hard. And when you start reading the stuff in the Sermon on the Mount that we are called to do, it is hard. It is really hard. But the exciting thing about it is, if you're looking at the world, and I've looked at the world recently, I've watched the news, and you read economic downturn, war, um, high unemployment, the list could go on and on and on, and you can look at it and go, oh my goodness, how am I going to pay the mortgage? How am I going to pay my children's tuition fees? Because now you have to pay to go to university. I mean, you did anyway by taxes and all the rest of it. But it's different now. And how, how am I going to pay for this? How am I going to do that? What about this? What about the other? And when we come to the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus teaches is, don't worry about that stuff. Here's a different way. Now, for somebody who's really burdened by what's going on in the world, and it's really dragging you down, if you hear there's another way, you don't have to worry about house and mortgage and etc, etc. That's an appealing message. The people that I work with in my day jobs, who I know are stressed about what's going to happen when we get to the end of this financial year and we're all waiting to hear much as they have done in the NHS, within the local authority. Will there be more cuts? Who's it going to affect? Will it be me? I still get nervous about that. And I know that I'm considering going to ministry and I'm exploring all that sort of stuff, but I still worry, you know, what am I going to do? What happens if? And then I read this. Sermon on the Mount that Jesus gives that says, don't worry, we'll provide for you. And we're going to look a little bit more about that next week. So I think it's really interesting that Matthew puts this whole sermon right at the start. Because what the readers of it get to read is, there's a different way. Yeah, there's the stuff going on in the world, but there's another way. And those of us that have been Christians a long time, I think sometimes, I know I think, A, I know I've got comfortable, and B, I look around at church and I think, has everyone else got comfortable too? Is it only me that still gets excited and passionate and goes, come on, let's just sell everything and move to Africa or whatever it might be? I want that adventure. And I want that adventure when I'm looking at Jesus. And then I look at the jobs that we need to do around our house and I go, oh no, but we couldn't possibly, we couldn't do that because there's all this other stuff that we've got to do and we're going to have a baby and we need stuff and there's more stuff and stuff and stuff. More stuff to worry about. But then I look at Jesus and I go, I should look up there really, shouldn't I? What an adventure. What an exciting way to live. To not worry about what tomorrow brings. To not worry about the food that I'm going to eat or the clothes I'm going to wear. What a fantastic way to go. But we only really get it. We only really get it. When we're filled with the Holy Spirit. And you can only really live this out if you've got the Holy Spirit to guide you. So the Sermon on the Mount, as 
I read last week, and as we'll look at in the coming couple of weeks, it is about discipleship. It's about the character that we should have as Christians. It's about the attitude that we should have, the duties that we should fulfill. And it also talks about the dangers. And it's interesting that it goes at the start because discipleship should start at the start. And I think quite a lot of the time we disciple people to fit into church, to fit into our way of doing things. We don't necessarily disciple people to be disciples of Christ. So come in to the bit that Gareth read out. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Now, for those that are scientists, you'll know that salt cannot become less salty. Salt is salt, and it can't be anything else. That's going to confuse some people. If I leave it there, I won't know. Salt can't become less salty. However, what this refers to, so I'm told from the commentaries that I've read, is that... Um, in the, I want to say Red Sea, but it might be the Dead Sea, because now I thought it in my head, I've got, they rhyme, and it's not helping me. Um, <laughs> I, don't, I can't think now. Red or dead. Anyway, one of the seas, there's salt. Um, and there is good salt and there is bad salt, depending on what is dug up. And the good salt is salt, and it stays salty. Bad salt is all the other imperfections and impurities that you get when you get the other Salt, and so it's got other stuff in it. So actually what happens is it does become less salty, but it's because stuff dissolves out of it, and therefore it becomes less salty. But the actual salt bit, if you were going to go, is it sodium chloride? Yes. Yay for my memory of science lessons a few years ago. See, I do remember a few things. I would include that if I was writing. No. Um, and what is salt used for? Salt is used to preserve things and for taste. We are the salt of the earth. I read a nice little thing about that during this week. If we are the salt of the earth, we as Christians that are filled with the Spirit and living out um, Christ-like lives, we are the people that get to make this world a little bit more palatable. And I thought, yeah, actually, that is what it's about. There's other bits too. But I really liked that because often I look at the world and I go, oh my goodness, God, what is going on? The world is a mess. There's stuff happening all over the place and it gets me down. And I really liked the idea that actually by being the salt of the earth we get to add that little bit of sprinkling of flavour that makes a difference. That makes something not just be a bland fish and chips but really good fish and chips. Or whatever food preference you might have. And it says that 
We are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. What is interesting about all of this passage is it doesn't say, these are the things that you need to say when you're sharing your life with somebody and you are hoping that they might become a Christian. When you're doing evangelism, this gospel doesn't tell you any of that. This says, this is how you should live. This is how you should think. This is how you should be because that is what people see. And when people see that, they're going to want to know more. People are attracted to light. There's been a campaign, protests, sign the petition. We're turning the lights off between hours that nobody's up. People like light. We, you and me, are the light of the earth. But it is quite challenging, this message. Because in the final bit that Gareth read out, in about the fulfilment of the law, Jesus says he came to fulfill the law, not to override it or abandon it, but to fulfill. And it says anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And I don't don't think any of us want that. I think we probably all want the other bit, where we get called great in the kingdom of heaven. Which means that we do have to live according to these ways. And yes, I know, it's challenging. And yes, we will mess up. And thankfully, God is a God of forgiveness if we come and we repent. But that doesn't mean that if I do something today and then ask for forgiveness, I can go out and do it again tomorrow. If I repent, I need to learn. And I need to do it differently tomorrow or not do it at all or do something totally different. If we truly lived as Christians with the Holy Spirit leading the way and guiding us, living out this sermon on the mount, imagine what the world would be like. I've heard people say, why does God allow all this suffering? Why is the world so hopeless? I know Christians, I myself say, why? Why, why, why? But what an opportunity for us to go, I don't necessarily know why, but I can make things brighter because I have got a light of Christ shining in me and I want to share it with you.